0: A few years ago, um, I was in Africa, I was teaching in Rwanda and uh, I got invited to a wedding. I didn't know the bride or the groom, Uh, in fact the bride was the, here's the story, she was the sister of the CEO of the aid agency that I was working with, had no idea who they were. Uh, He invited me and the other lecturers to come to the wedding and to the reception. And uh, I don't know how it works here in the United States, but where I come from, if you get invited to a wedding, something comes in the mail you know, a very pretty little card, and it's got your name on it. And uh, even, if, even if you only got invited to the wedding and not the reception, even then there's almost always a card with your name. Uh, but not that, that's not how it works in Rwanda. Um, the wedding is much more of a public affair. Uh, in fact, when we arrived at the uh, church, we found it was actually three couples getting married. Um, they were literally all on stage at the same time, saying their vows in unison. And that's completely normal. We're told sometimes there are six couples getting married all at once um, and then we went to the wedding reception and I was pretty worried you know I'm, I'm that kind of guy normally at weddings uh, receptions there's a seating chart out the front you find your name and the table and um, we didn't know anybody except for our friend the CEO um, and in Rwanda I mean actually everywhere catering is expensive right uh, you want to cater a wedding it's super expensive and um, in Rwanda the kind of meal that you would get at a reception a wedding reception well, that would be like a week's worth of wages for each individual meal for a Rwandan person, I, I would think. Uh, turns out we didn't need to worry. Um, the reception was not exactly what we expected. It was an, an open-air hall. It was really pretty. Um, there was a, a church band at the front. Um, there were some wooden chairs placed around the outside of the dance floor. And uh, there were no tables. There were no place cards. There were no uh, wedding favors, no bonbonniere, none of that stuff. The wedding planners here are like, how am I supposed to make my money? Um, there was no meal. Um, in fact, every guest had this cultural understanding that when you go to a wedding, you get one bottle of soda and you get one slice of wedding cake. That's what you get. And it's just a cultural understanding. You don't expect more. That's, that's good. And, and that's just how weddings work in Rwanda. I think that probably still costs about $2 per person, which is like one day's wage for every guest that you invite. And they had 200 guests there. Uh, weddings are a big deal, and they have been for a very long time. And a wedding is the setting for our Bible story today. Uh, Jesus is invited to a wedding, and what he does, it becomes one of his most famous miracles. And I also think it's probably one of the most misunderstood. So, why don't we pray that God would help us to understand it as we open the Bible now? Uh, will you pray with me? Our heavenly Father, give us ears to hear and minds to understand what we read in the Bible this morning. Uh, help us not just to see the miracle but to see the reason behind it. Help us to encounter Jesus. We pray this in his name, amen. Uh, Well, we are in the middle of our series called Encounters with Jesus. Uh, It's all about people who met Jesus and the way that it changed their lives uh, in that encounter. Well, our encounter, as I said, takes place at a wedding. Um, Verse one, on the third day, a wedding took place in Cana in Galilee. Jesus' mother was there and Jesus and his disciples had also been invited to the wedding. Jesus gets invited to this wedding. We don't know whose wedding it was, but Jesus' mom had been uh, invited and had Jesus and the other disciples, and that's because weddings were much more of a public affair, Um, a lot like the wedding that I went to in Rwanda. Uh, A wedding wasn't just a celebration for the bride and the groom. Uh, It was actually a celebration for the whole town. Uh, Pastor Tim Keller shares the reason why Uh, He says this, he says, "'The purpose of a marriage was not primarily the happiness of two individuals, "'but instead it was to bind the community together "'and to raise the next generation.'" In other words, the purpose of marriage was the good of the commonwealth. The bigger, the stronger, the more numerous the families of a town, well, the better its economy and the greater the military security and the more everybody flourished. Each wedding was a public feast for the whole town because marriage was about the whole community. And so ancient wedding feasts, they would sometimes go on for a week. Imagine a seven-day wedding. Um, This wedding had a problem, though, verse 3. The wine had run out, Uh, and it seems like the wine ran out pretty early in the party. It wasn't right at the end. I think it was pretty early. And uh, when you host a party, isn't that one of your worst fears, that uh, you're going to run out of something? I know at our house, every time we have people over, by the way, we've got uh, newcomers lunch today. You should come to lunch at my house today. Um, you'll play into my fears, but it'll be okay. <laughs> Whenever you have people over, you know, you plan for the people who are coming and you cater for them, and then the night before, you stay up worrying and you think, I just need to go and get a little bit more. And so you go down to Target and you buy it all again, and uh, you cater for at least three times the number of guests. Um now that said, at my house, we have been in situations where we were praying for loaves and fishes. <laughs> More people turned up, it was wonderful, and everybody ate, and nobody threw anything at us. (laughs) Come back to this, that's not going to happen at lunch today, we have plenty, I hope. Um, Come back to the, we have a a slice of cake and a bottle of soda. (laughs) Come back to the story. Uh, That worst fear came true for the groom and the bride. Uh, The wine had run out at their wedding feast. Uh, Perhaps they didn't account for as many guests, or perhaps... Their budget was tight, perhaps people were very thirsty. Whatever the reason, can you imagine the shame for that couple? The shame that they would have had if this is how their wedding feast ended. Um, Can you imagine what the people of their small town would say? In their shame and honor culture, um, this was a major problem. And Jesus' mother, she hears about the problem and so she approaches Jesus, verse 3. When the wine was gone, Jesus' mother said to him, they have no more wine. Jesus replied, woman, why do you involve me? It's a good question, isn't it? Why why does Jesus' mother come to tell him about the wine? Why does she involve Jesus? Well, remember our series is called Encounters with Jesus. And Mary, she's had encounters with Jesus ever since his birth. In fact, even before his birth, Mary had been visited by the angel Gabriel who told her that this son that she was going to bear, he would be the son of the Most High. And then he'd be given the throne of David and his reign would last forever. So Mary knew that Jesus, her son, was very special. And uh, he was destined for greatness. And she'd watched him grow up for 30 years, wondering, when is this hour going to come? When's the hour of his glorification going to come? Could this be the moment, she wonders? What Jesus says in verse 4, it's not yet. Woman, why do you involve me, Jesus replied. My hour has not yet come. Uh, by the way some people think Jesus sounds a little bit harsh here when he calls his mother woman Um, apparently according to ancient language experts ancient Greek language experts this doesn't denote any disrespect Uh, it's just something you could call people and it's culturally different I suppose Jesus hour had not yet come Uh, what did that mean well we're going to come back to that idea in just a couple of minutes Uh, come back to the story with me See, Jesus' mother wasn't deterred. Jesus says, why do you involve me? But his mom says, don't worry, we'll get this sorted. She gets a hold of some of the servants. uh, Verse 5, and his mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Mary clearly expects Jesus to do something, doesn't she? Uh, Perhaps she'd seen him do things before. You know, perhaps she'd noticed that when Jesus was around, things just happened. We don't know. I'm just guessing. Um, Maybe they didn't. Perhaps it was that Mary had been waiting for 30 years for all of those promises of the Lord to come true. Um, And now she was seeing it happen before her eyes. You know, just three days before, Jesus had been baptized in the River Jordan by um, his own cousin, John the Baptist. And if you remember the story, John the Baptist, that's Mary's nephew. Mary no, no, John the Baptist's mom had also been visited by an angel, and the two births were not quite simultaneous. I think John's a couple of months older, but when the two moms saw each other and they both had babies in their bellies, the babies had bounced around. It was a special moment, and now the babies were back together as 30-year-old men. God was on the move. Was something going to happen? Do whatever He tells you," Mary tells the servants. Well Jesus does something, reading from verse six. Nearby stood six stone water jars, the kind used by the Jews for ceremonial washing, each holding from 20 to 30 gallons. The jars with water, and so they filled them to the brim. I think we're going to go a little change here. So they filled them to the brim, and then he told them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the banquet. And they did so. And the master of the banquet, he tasted the water that had been turned into wine. He didn't realize where it had come from, although the servants who'd drawn the water, they knew. Um, this is the miracle that was so well known, isn't it? Jesus turns water into wine. In fact, he makes lots of wine. Um, I did the math, and uh, using that measurement in verse 6, um, conservatively, Jesus makes something like 120 to 180 gallons of wine. 700 to 1,000 bottles. Give or take, that's a good start to your wine cellar as a young married couple. <laughs> also, not the point of this story. <laughs> um, it is good wine. Um, when the verse, uh, verse nine, when the master of the banquet he tastes the water that has been turned into wine, and he doesn't realize where it comes from. He has no idea that it was water just a minute ago. He thinks this is the best wine ever. Um, the master of the banquet, he's like the wedding planner. Um, I know we have wedding planners in the room. Um it's not good when something runs out at the wedding reception especially the wine and I'm imagining this wedding planner sent the servants into the back he says go and look behind the smoked salmon maybe there's another box of wine and they come back with these great big jars of wine and uh, it tastes amazing I put a little quote on the back of your um, of your handout I think the most expensive bottle of wine ever five hundred fifty eight thousand dollars a couple of years ago at auction who knows one day they'll break a million a bottle of wine he comes back with his wine it's such good wine that the banquet master calls the bridegroom aside and he says in verse 10 everybody else brings out the choice wine at the beginning and then the cheaper wine after everybody's a little bit drunk but you've saved the best till now Uh, remember we're looking at encounters with jesus Um, The, he doesn't really have an encounter with jesus does he uh, he doesn't. In verse 9, it says he didn't realize where the wine had come from. In verse 10, he assumes the bridegroom had supplied the wine. And it congratulates him for his generosity in providing this good wine when so many others would have provided the cheap stuff. And so the master of the banquet, he actually doesn't have any personal encounter with Jesus. He just enjoys the unseen blessings that Jesus brings. Jesus brings unseen blessings to the world. And isn't that true of so many people in the world? Um, Jesus said that God sends the rain on the righteous and the unrighteous. We all enjoy countless blessings that God pours out, whether we see them or not. Wouldn't it be lovely if people saw the blessings that God was pouring out on them? Well, the banquet master, he didn't have an encounter with Jesus, but I think the servants probably did. Do you see in verse 9? The servants who drew the water, well, they knew where the wine had come from, I imagine they went home and they told everybody they knew about this man who turned water into wine. But there's a kind of irony in the servants being the first eyewitnesses, or the eyewitnesses of the first miracle that Jesus does, because servants are unseen, servants are unimportant, they're uh, they're uninfluential, and yet Jesus trusts them with this secret that he's not willing to reveal to the to the world yet. He's, Hour hadn't come as he said in verse 4 and it tells you something about Jesus character he identifies with servants more than the powerful and the influential rather than bringing glory to himself in this first miracle he lifts up the lowly and he allows this bridegroom to retain his honor he allows this bridegroom to enjoy his wedding and I think that's the key to understanding this first miracle of Jesus, or, or a sign, as it's called here in the book of John. Come back to that theme I spoke about earlier, the, the idea of honor and shame. And the culture of the people in our Bible story, well, it was an honor and shame culture. Uh, in an honor and shame culture, honor is key. Uh, you do everything you can to bring honor to your family and to your tribe and your village and your nation. And if you do something that brings shame to yourself, then that shame is reflected on your family or your village or your nation. Honor and shame matters to them. And the bridegroom in our story, well he's at risk of bringing shame to himself and bringing shame to his new bride and bringing shame to his family and to her family. It would have caused serious consequences for this family if they didn't have enough wine at the wedding. Isn't it a silly thing to bring shame to your family just because you ran out or because you didn't have enough money? you know what Jesus does he quietly makes the problem go away you know up he covers up the shame of the bridegroom so that nobody ever knows that it was Jesus who fixed the problem Jesus selflessly allows this man to enjoy his wedding and at the surface level this miracle could be seen as just Jesus turning water into wine to enable a party to continue but there's a deeper meaning when we look at the clues hidden in the text The miracle, it signifies something much deeper. Uh, It points to a deeper truth about the covering of shame that is core to Jesus' mission. Um, The first clue is in verse 4. Jesus says, my hour has not yet come. I love it when you get to the end of a movie and um, you realize the writers have left a trail of breadcrumbs all the way through the story. And you get to the end and you're like, oh, I recognize. I can see the signs now. Well, in John's gospel, this concept of the hour, it comes up eight times. And when you get to the end of John, we finally understand that this hour is the hour of Jesus' crucifixion. It's the hour of his death, an hour that many people hoped would actually bring shame to Jesus. But Jesus says, this is the hour of my glorification. And the two concepts, his hour and his glorification, they're inextricably linked. And so when Jesus says to his mother that, His hour hasn't yet come. He's saying that it's not time yet for him to reveal the end game. But it doesn't stop him from sharing a clue about what the end game is. And it's right there in verse 6, the jars that Jesus chooses to perform his miracles. Well, they were the kind used by Jews for ceremonial washing. Every Jewish household, they would have had one of these jars in their home. And it would have been set aside specifically for the purpose of ceremonial washing. And the idea behind ceremonial washing is that we all do certain things in life that render us unclean before God. And so ceremonial washing, it's all about washing away those stains, washing away the guilt, washing away the shame. But of course, ceremonial washing can never truly wash away guilt. Shakespeare makes that point in Macbeth, doesn't he? When Lady Macbeth is washing her hands after she and Macbeth have assassinated Duncan the king. And she says again and again, out damned spot. The blood is physically washed away, but of course, metaphorically, you can never wash blood from your hands. And that's true of all of the things we've done that cause us guilt and shame, both large and small. We can't undo them on our own. We can't undo those things even if we wanted to. Like Adam and Eve, we might try to hide our shame. We might try to hide from God or cover our shame with threadbare excuses. But deep down we know that there's nothing we can do to atone. Nothing we can really do to make up for the wrong that we've done. And that's why ceremonial washing was only one part of the Old Testament cleansing process. And the sacrificial system had ultimately culminated in the shedding of blood. God's people would bring a bull or a lamb to the, uh, to the temple and its blood was poured out. It was killed. Its blood was poured out to represent the penalty of sin. Its blood was poured out instead of the blood of the guilty person. But just like washing your hands can't remove blood guilt, nor can the sacrifice of an animal. Um, As it says in Hebrews 10.4, it says it's impossible for the blood of bulls and goats to take away sins. And so the whole sacrificial system, it's another clue. It's all pointing towards the one true sacrifice, Jesus Christ. Jesus whose hour would come. Jesus whose blood would be poured out for the forgiveness of sins. God himself covering our sin and shame. By his blood that brings us to the third clue in the story the wine because when we put together the clue about the cross and the clue about being washed clean it's really easy to link the wine to Jesus blood isn't it Uh, in just a little while we'll share communion together which is a way of remembering Jesus blood poured out for us for the forgiveness of sins and if that's all this miracle pointed out would have been a great miracle but I think there's one more uh, image in Jesus' mind. This idea that connects the wine and the washing all together with a picture of heaven. Um, in the book of Isaiah, there's this image of heaven um, as the destiny for all who have their faith in God. And uh, it's an image of a banquet. It's in Isaiah 25, starting at verse 6. It says this, it says, on this mountain, the Lord Almighty will prepare a feast of rich food for all peoples. A banquet of aged wine the best of meats and the finest of wines sounds like a good banquet doesn't it heaven is pictured as a feast a banquet just like the wedding banquet that Jesus was at and in Isaiah it's the Lord who prepares the feast Well, here at this banquet Jesus brings the wine Jesus is revealed as the Lord there's a parallel there Jesus is the true banquet master and he invites his people to the eternal feast whatever shame we might carry, whatever guilt, whatever disgrace, the Bible is clear that Jesus can deal with that. That's what the cross and the blood was all about. Jesus will cover our guilt and he'll cover our shame so that we can join the banquet and we can sit at the side of Jesus Christ, dining and feasting as part of his family, an invited guest forever and forever. Um, Let me read the next part. It's, It's even clearer. About our disgrace being washed away. Verse 7: On this mountain, he will destroy the shroud that enfolds all peoples, the sheet that covers all nations. He will swallow up death forever. Sovereign Lord will wipe away the tears from their faces. He will remove his people's disgrace from all the earth. The Lord has spoken. See, God Himself will remove our disgrace when we put our trust in Jesus. Um, Jesus, He could have done a very public miracle to introduce himself to the world, to make a big splash. But instead he quietly showed his disciples what kind of saviour he would be. A saviour who washes us clean of our guilt. A saviour who covers our shame. A saviour who invites us to the banquet that lasts forever. That's what you get when you encounter Jesus at the wedding of Cana. An invitation to dine with Jesus forever. Will you pray with me? Heavenly Father, we thank you for this message of hope, this message about an invitation of Jesus to come and dine with him, to share in the choicest of wines, the wine of eternal life. Help us to have trust in Jesus now and forever. We pray in his name. Amen.